everyone, and welcome to the Future of Health with Providence St. Joseph Health. I'm your host, Mary Renoff, bringing you the latest in healthcare trends and news each week. Today, we're joined by experts from Providence Regional Cancer System, including its director, Ryan Moore, and oncology psychologist, Dr. Kobe Witten. Today, we're talking about breast cancer. Later in the show, we'll hear from Amy Rowley, a breast cancer survivor who created the Mayday Foundation, which helps ease the financial burden of cancer treatment for local families. Remember, everyone, if you have questions for our experts, please share them with us on social media. We can be found on Twitter at PSJH and on Facebook under Providence St. Joseph Health. Use the hashtag Future of Health. Again, it's hashtag Future of Health, and we'll be on the lookout for your questions. And before we start, I want our listeners to know that the information provided during this podcast is for educational purposes only. You should always consult your healthcare provider if you have any questions regarding a medical condition or treatment. Well, thank you for joining us today. I'm very excited to get started in this conversation. Kobe, tell us a little bit about yourself. Thanks so much for having me. I'm excited to be here. I've been working in oncology since 1981, actually, when I was a graduate student. And I have a master's and doctorate in clinical psychology. And most all of my work has been working with cancer patients and their families, both at the point of diagnosis and then throughout the rest of their lives. And a particular interest of mine is just the uncertainty and stress that often comes with the diagnosis and may not dissipate, may not go away even after treatment ends. Yeah, that's very true, very true. Brian? Thank you uh, also for having me. Uh, My name is Brian Moore. I'm the Director of Oncology Operations in Southwest Washington. I moved to Olympia in in 1996 as a radiation therapist and uh, I'm just thrilled to be here. And your focus is on oncology operations here, is that correct? That's correct. Okay, and what does that mean? (laughs) Um, Operations involves um, all of the, specifically the outpatient oncology services that we provide in Southwest Washington. That being medical oncology, radiation oncology, surgery, diagnostic imaging, genetic counseling, research, um, our supportive or integrative care program, and I'd love to talk more about that later, uh, counseling and social work, uh, support groups, palliative care, spiritual care, and of course our inpatient services, uh, hospice. And so just a little bit, just, just a few things. One or two. <laughs> it sounds to me like nobody would ever have to leave the area, that's for sure. You've got it all right here. Citizens, we know that you have the full spectrum of actual care for people once they've uh, gotten a diagnosis. Let's talk a little bit, though, about Kobe, your specialty. How does Providence care for a person's body, mind, and spirit during their cancer treatment? Well, we recognize that cancer is a disease at the cellular level. That's what our treatment team is treating. And yet, it can affect every aspect of your life, psychologically, socially, financially, sexually spiritually, you name it. And we understand that. And that's why we have a full team of providers and support staff to help not only the person person diagnosed with cancer, but their loved ones, because we know that they're affected by the disease also. There are late and long-term effects sometimes from the treatment we are offering to you. So we're there for the long haul. We're there beyond treatment. And you may have been treated successfully for your cancer. You may be living with cancer more as a chronic disease, which is more and more common right now. And we recognize that there's a full spectrum of services that we need to provide to you to help you successfully navigate that that path. 
think it's interesting. I want to touch on the mental health aspect of it because we talked off air, right? So I survived breast cancer and then I got a cervical cancer diagnosis. And I think I did okay with the breast cancer. But as soon as I got that second diagnosis, I, I kind of had a pretty deep impact on me. It was a little bit of depression, a little bit of frustration. How do you treat the mental health of somebody who's going through this? And, and how do you actually have that conversation with somebody? I think that what is a good idea is to plant the seed early on that when treatment ends, it doesn't all end. And as one of my patients so beautifully said, I may be cancer free, but not free of cancer. There are long-term effects, fatigue, perhaps neuropathy, the tingling, the numbness, lymphedema, swelling, and emotional trauma, fear of recurrence, even if you have a good prognosis. And one of the findings in my own research a long time ago was that stage of disease or prognosis, even when it's good, even when it's early stage disease, you may have significant fear and anxiety moving forward, particularly around recheck exams for recurrence. Mm -hmm. We call that scanxiety. So we There's offer- a name for it. Yes, okay. scanxiety. And we offer a number of services. We have a social worker and counselors, our navigators, our survivorship care coordinator to help you at the end of active treatment. What now? What do I do? What am I screened for? Who should I talk to? What should I worry about? What are the signs that I, with my primary care and my oncology team, should should look for? And really, one of the things we emphasize through our meditation classes, through all of our workshops, is do what you need to do. Cross the T's, dot the I's, take care of your health, have your appointments lined up, be aware of changes, and then enjoy your life enjoy this moment you mentioned chronic condition now which I know we're seeing a lot of how has that impacted the way that we care for cancer patients when I started graduate school in the early 80s we really just as a psychologist focused on patients at the point of diagnosis when they were often like a deer in the headlights or you know those Charlie Brown specials where when the parents speak in the background, you can't discern any words. It's just wow, 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 wow. And sometimes after hearing the word cancer, that's what it's like for patients. So we paid attention at diagnosis and then close to death, which was so limited and naive of us. Now we recognize people may live decades. They're successfully treated or cancer may be a chronic disease like diabetes or heart disease which we successfully treat, it may return, we treat again, and we really have more of a focus on how do we help with side effects from these treatments? How do we help with the adjustment to cancer may not go away? How do I learn to be flexible? How do I work with my family and my job and other aspects of my life so this is incorporated into my life without taking over my life? Very interesting. So Ryan, from an operations perspective, I assume that having to deal with chronic con conditions related to cancer and all these things, does that impact the type of physicians or the type of centers and programs that you guys offer? How, how have things changed, I guess, over the last decade or so when it comes to cancer care? Well, certainly patients, uh, and this is a good thing, patients are living longer than they have in the past. We're doing a better job taking care of them. Um, one of the things that we're particularly proud of in Southwest Washington is our um, palliative care program. Uh, and that's a, a, a word that's often misunderstood. 
People often associate palliative care with end-of-life care or hospice care. Um, it's really not, though. Palliative care is, it's important to get our palliative care professionals involved early um, in a patient's course of therapy. And it's, it's more than just dealing with end-of-life. Certainly they deal, they can support that, but they're exceptional at managing uh, pain for patients, uh, the social aspects, um, uh, mental health issues. They, they offer spiritual care as part of palliative care. And again, we're really proud to have uh, physicians that specialize specifically in palliative care for our, our, our patients that are living longer and do need uh, support over the long term. Can I just add something there, Mary? I, I think sometimes we think that after a cancer diagnosis and its treatment will be devastated and many aspects of our life will be over and how do you ever come back from this? And certainly that I've seen over decades of working with patients and their families that the diagnosis may drag us out of the cave so many of us live in in terms of nothing bad will happen, I'll never get sick, no one I love will get sick or will ever die. And it can be startling out here in the sunlight from the cave and frightening, but there are gifts embedded in this in terms of recognizing what's important in life, who you want to be with, what you want to choose to worry about, and really how you want to live your life in a very thoughtful, aware way. And that's one of the, I think, unexpected, I don't want to call it a gift, as Chris Carr, who has a great website, says, cancer isn't a gift because I wouldn't want to give it to you, but it can be a catalyst for living. Well, we're going to take a quick break, everyone. When we come back, we're going to continue the conversation about Providence Cancer Care here in Southwest Washington. Thank you. I like the way you talk. I like the things you wear. I want your number tattooed on my arm in ink, I swear. Because when the morning comes, I know you won't be there. Every time I turn around, you disappear.
we're back with Future of Health. Today we're talking about cancer care in Southwest Washington. Ryan, tell me a little bit about how important early detection is when it comes to cancer care. Well, certainly the earlier cancers are detected, the more treatable they are. Um, and, and really, I can't stress uh, enough the importance of maintaining an ongoing relationship with uh, your primary care provider. Um, and certainly following their recommendations for specific to breast cancer, uh, when you should be getting your next mammogram, uh, because those recommendations often change. So again, it's important to stay close to your primary care provider. And, and if I can jump in here, Ryan, just being aware of changes in your own body. I mean, in terms of changes in your breasts or for other you know, disorders, skin changes, changes in um, your your bowel, just being aware of what your baseline is, and that's where your relationship with your primary care physician certainly helps. But in between visits, just being aware of symptoms or, or signs, and then checking in with, with your physician about that. And certainly we know, and this is across all diseases, that eating well, moving, exercise, reducing your, your stress level is it, reducing alcohol consumption, those are just good things to do for a, for a healthier life, no matter what the disease risk. I couldn't agree more, Kobe, and especially um, not smoking is an important one, too. Absolutely. These are your general, like, stay healthy things. Yep. Like so um, talk a little bit about cancer screenings, what, what that involves. Uh, well, our most... Uh, commonly used screening tool for breast cancer specifically is the mammogram. Uh, again, the recommendations often change and there's a lot of debate about um, when women should start getting mammograms, but again, this is where it's important to take the recommendation of your primary care provider and, um, and like Kobe said, pay attention to changes uh, in your breast things you notice. Um, but there's a, a number of different or a few different types of mammograms. You know, it, it's evolved over the years from, from a film-based type mammogram to more of a, uh, a digital uh, mammogram, which is great in that we can use computer algorithms to help our radiologists detect early stage breast cancers. Things that can't be felt, you know, lumps that can't be felt can often be seen on a mammogram. And there's some really neat technology that's being used now too, a, a three-dimensional mammogram that instead of taking just one or two planar images, they take a number of images and, and reconstruct a, a three-dimensional picture of the breast. Just, just to add to the um, guidelines, remember, you every person is an individual. So no matter what the guidelines are, it really is important to understand your own personal risk in terms of family history, perhaps genetic testing, counseling, and that that conversation again with your primary care doctor in terms of your own preferences, your own risk, and just who you are as an individual. Each person is different. The screening recommendations might be unique to you, just as if a cancer diagnosed, every cancer is different and needs individualized treatment. I'm really glad you brought up genetics, Kobe. I think that's a Another really popular thing you hear about uh, in the media these days, and certainly plays an extremely important role in breast cancer. And you know, one of the things that I think is good to remind folks is that these at-home uh, genetic profiling tests are extremely popular, and there's uh, those tests do a lot of, of really neat things. But it's important to know that 
those tests typically aren't comprehensive. And you certainly, I would certainly advocate for patients interested in genetic testing to see someone who specializes in genetic testing, specifically a genetic counselor. Um, those counselors will meet with folks prior to genetic testing, first just to make sure that the test is right for them and making sure that the right test is being ordered. Another important piece of that is even if all of us could do the most sophisticated test at home on our own, interpreting the results mm -hmm. is probably the most complicated piece. And that's where you really need a specialist, a genetic counselor to, to help walk patients through those results. Exactly, walk the patients through and also help communicate that to family members, which can be a very complicated process. Um, if the test is, is positive. Also, as, as a psychologist, even with years of experience in working with cancer, I'm married to a pathologist, even with all that, I would not want to be home alone looking at my computer screen finding out that I'm at significant higher risk for cancer. Absolutely. I need someone with me who's expert who can walk me through what's next. I would find that overwhelming and frightening. So there are many gifts that genetic counselors bring and I think their expertise, knowing the path ahead, a little information can be powerful informative and frightening. So you wanna make sure that you're, you're getting it appropriately from someone who, who really knows what they're talking about and what is next. I can only imagine because when you get your lab results back after just getting your, your blood drawn, there's so many numbers, there's so many like variables. So basically getting your test results or getting a diagnosis I'm sure can be overwhelming and I think you guys are doing a lot to help people through that process. Kobe, you have a pretty unique program here called Cancer 101, what is that? We used to call it new patient orientation when we started 10 years ago, but we found that wherever patients were in the care continuum, when they were, whether they were newly diagnosed or months or even years later, they found the event tru truly helpful and informative. So it's an informal gathering. We meet 10 times a year. You only come once at our different sites. And I have everyone from pathology, surgery, radiology, medical oncology, radiation oncology, our counselors, social workers, navigators, integrative care providers, survivorship care providers, palliative care, everyone comes and does a brief presentation and we serve dinner and we give you a bag of resources and information to take home. So even if you're not absorbing everything that evening or even ready to think about it all, you know who to call and when. And it's informal. You're not in a dressing gown being examined. The physicians and other support staff are in the room with you. There's opportunity to ask questions and even afterwards talk to them one-on-one. -on -one. And we've gotten great feedback on these events. We start with things like, what is cancer? Why did I get it? What are the treatments? Every day in the news, we see so many new treatments that can be overwhelming and just almost paralyzing. So it's an informal evening of information, support, and you look around the room and you realize, I am not alone. One in two men, one in three women are diagnosed in their lifetime and you recognize I am not on this path alone. One in two and one in three, that's amazing. 
Well, we're going to take one more break, and when we come back, we're going to be joined again by the experts from the Providence Regional Cancer System here in Southwest Washington. Thank you. It's crazy when the thing you love the most is the detriment. Let that sink in. You can think again when the hand you wanna hold is a weapon in. In nothing but skin Oh, cause I keep digging myself down deeper I won't stop till I get where you are I keep running, I keep running, I keep running They say I may be making a mistake I would have followed all the way No matter how far Dr. Kobe was talking about the vast amount of people who were in her Cancer 101, which uh, leads us into the conversation. Ryan, we were talking off air about your multidisciplinary cancer conference team, and that seems to be a pretty deep bench you have there, too. Can you talk about that? Yeah, those, uh, those are often referred to as tumor boards, or also referred to as tumor boards, in their prospective meetings, meaning their uh, patients' cases are discussed prior to treatment being delivered as opposed to retrospective, which is uh, talking about uh, patient cases after they've been treated. Um, the folks that attend these tumor boards are uh, surgeons, pathologists, radiologists, medical oncologists, radiation oncologists, uh, research nurses, genetic counselors, nurse navigators, 
Um, and again, the intent of the meetings are to bring specific patient cases in front of that group um, and discuss what the right uh, form of therapy would be uh, using, of course, national guidelines, but, but again, personalizing that patient's treatment based specifically on their attributes. It's really fantastic to have such, that, such a large team together talking uh, at a patient-specific level about what the best course of therapy would be. So how do the patients, or is it the physicians that's accessing this board, how does that really impact their care? Typically, it's the physicians who are requesting to have patients presented to their colleagues. Although patients are certainly welcome to suggest that their case be discussed at a tumor board. And we have different tumor boards for different disease sites. So we have a breast cancer specific tumor board that meets every week. And we have tumor boards for head and neck, for gynecologic oncology, um, and just every major disease type we have a specific tumor board for. So gynecological oncology is interesting. Um, I don't think that it's as common as everyone thinks to have experts on board. And I know this after I got my cervical cancer diagnosis that it, it took me a while to find a good one and then to get on the wait list to see one. It's pretty exciting that you guys have one in the area. How does that? How is that working? Are you seeing a lot more patients now? Absolutely. And in fact, that that specific subspecialty is booming. Uh, we're very excited and proud to have a full-time gynecologic oncologist here in Southwest Washington, a robotically trained surgeon, who again specializes specifically in gynecologic cancers. Not every community has this type of specialist, and so we're, we're very fortunate to have uh, this in, in Southwest Washington. So you, again, you have a really deep bench of people that are seeing the patients and that are talking about their care. What do you have from a non-traditional perspective? I'm, I'm glad you asked. You know, when folks think about primary cancer therapies, the, the three bigs that you think about are, are surgery, medical oncology, and radiation oncology. And certainly those are all uh, important pieces of, of cancer therapy. But there's other um, integrative or supportive therapies that are uh, extremely important and valuable, specifically things like naturopathic oncology, um, oncology massage, and acupuncture. Those are all services that, that we offer on-site here in, in Southwest Washington. And you might think that, well, a massage is a massage is a massage. Um, not true, actually. Um, it's important to have someone who specializes in uh, massage specifically for oncology patients, and, and we're excited to be able to offer that. And it, I think sometimes people on their own thinking they're just helping themselves will medicate with things like antioxidants or other supplements. And as I caution my patients, just because something is, quote, natural doesn't mean it's safe. Arsenic is natural. We don't want to ingest it. And specifically, there are things like antioxidants during certain cancer treatments that can actually cause cancer to grow, so not help you. So it's really important if you're going to take supplements or you're thinking of that, you have questions about nutrition, or you're really experiencing side effects, nausea, dry mouth, range of motion issues, we have these expertly trained integrative care providers who can help you with the side effects and enhance your quality of life. I couldn't agree more, Kobe. It's a little bit like the genetic counselor. Um, the naturopathic oncologist is a specialist that is trained specifically in that, and it's great to get their advice and input on, on what supplements uh, you should be taking, uh, not just what you hear kind of in the news media, or certainly not anything that Kobe and I would suggest. 
Correct. <laughs> Us not being the experts. So we've talked a little bit about radiation. We've talked about the different kinds of cancer treatment, even the naturopathic route. The thing we hear most when we have conversations with people and what people call in about is the cost of health care, especially about cancer treatment. Can you talk about why it's so expensive? Yeah, ab absolutely. You're right. Um, cancer care is expensive. And I think one of the contributing factors is the amount of uh, research that goes into developing new therapies, things like immunotherapies and, uh, and the like. And um, it really, I can't stress enough the importance of maintaining good health insurance coverage. I think that's an important piece. Um, but the bottom line is there are folks that are going to have a hard time paying their medical bills. And, and uh, you know, central to Providence's core values is the commitment for caring for patients regardless of their ability to afford treatment. Um, and I'm proud to say that, that our organization has a, a team of financial assistance professionals that can work one-on-one -on -one with patients to, and their families to establish financial assistance eligibility and help them uh, pay for their medical bills. And we understand that it goes beyond medical bills you may have transportation costs, babysitting costs, have a difficult time paying your rent depending on your deductible, even when you have insurance. There are a bunch of ancillary, often unexpected costs that go along with cancer treatment, which is why we're so thrilled to partner with an organization like the Mayday Foundation. Which is a perfect transition because we're about to be joined by Amy Rowley, who's a breast cancer survivor and is the creator of the Mayday Foundation, which is purpose to help ease the financial burden of cancer treatment for local families. So let's bring Amy on in. So Amy, thank you for joining us. Thank you for having me. What inspired you to create the Mayday Foundation? I was diagnosed with breast cancer at the age of 42. I have no family history whatsoever, and I was caught extremely off guard. Um, when I began my treatment, I realized that my husband and I have had everything going for us. We had um, good health insurance, we had flexible employment, we had grandparents in the area that could help us with our kids, and it was still extremely challenging. And it just made me think about families that didn't have those um, so that support network and how just taking one thing out of that mix could really spiral downhill. So I started speaking with Kobe and other members of the Providence Oncology team about how I could make a difference in this community and to help families that maybe weren't as fortunate as mine. Um, and the Mayday Foundation was what became of it. My mom actually helped with the name. Uh, May, the month of May was the first time I had treatment. Um, it's also the month that both of my girls were born and it's a call for help, an hey, SOS. Yeah. Um, so it really um, fit together as a really great name. Beautiful. Well, tell me more about what you guys do. Yeah, so the Mayday Foundation provides immediate practical financial support to families coping with cancer while raising kids at home. It's really important to me that we're helping families um, to stay out of bankruptcy and to avoid being homeless while they're dealing with cancer. As you know, the financial toll that a, a major medical illness takes on a family is tremendous. And when you have the complexity of having kids at home and trying to maintain some stability in their lives, it can be extremely difficult to also add the worry and the stress of uh, financial concerns to that list. 
So we don't do any um, medical bills, don't cover any medical bills, but it's our goal that if we're helping with rent and utilities and gas and groceries, that that might be a way to free up some extra cash so that families are able to pay uh, their medical bills on time and to stay out of bankruptcy. So how do families find you and how do you decide how to help people? Yeah, so the majority of the families that come to us come through social workers um, and other community outreach providers within Thurston County. So they're referred to the Mayday Foundation and then after a phone call we're able to figure out exactly how to help um, and what kinds of services they could use. So all of our checks are paid directly to mortgage banks and landlords, utility companies, and then we get gas and grocery cards out in the mail to families immediately so that we can help. And one of the things that I thought about as I was going through treatment is that donations to research are so incredibly important to long-term success at finding a cure and also to make treatments more uh, tolerable. But when families are diagnosed with cancer, when a parent's diagnosed with cancer, they need help today. Um, and that input on, or that, that impact of research dollars isn't gonna help them pay their mortgage and keep their family in their, in their regular home. Absolutely. So you're basically taking a huge burden off of them and allowing them to focus on the health care itself. Exactly, exactly. And that's the feedback we get from the majority of our families is that they're able to focus on getting healthy and not to have to worry about how to pay the rent or pay the mortgage when they've lost income due to, due to being out of work. How long do you typically assist a, a, an average patient? Um, the average patient usually stays with us three, maybe upwards of six months. So it's that short-term financial assistance that gets a vulnerable family through the most difficult time. Well, we're going to take a quick break, and when we come back, we're going to continue talking with Amy, and we're going to learn even more about the Mayday Foundation. We'll be right back. Self-fulfilling I'm done crying myself away I gotta leave and start the healing But when you move like that I just wanna stay I won't lose me. 
to me All that shame and all that danger I'm hoping that my love will keep you up tonight Baby, how do you sleep when you lie to me? All that fear and all that pressure I'm hoping that my love will keep you up tonight Tell me how do you Future of Health joined with Amy Rowley, the Mayday Foundation founder. Amy, talk to me a little bit about what types of cancer people come to you with. Is it just breast cancer? Sure. When I originally was thinking or formulating the Mayday Foundation, I thought it would just be for breast cancer patients since I was connected to that community. However, I quickly realized that the cancer doesn't, it doesn't matter what type of cancer or who in the family has cancer, the impact is the same, that there's a financial toxicity and the concern over paying bills. So the Mayday Foundation supports any family member with cancer cancer. Wonderful, wonderful. It's a great proposition. We're going to actually take some questions from social. Um, For you listening, remember that you can always join us by social. Follow us on Twitter at PSJH and on Facebook under Providence St. Joseph Health and use the hashtag Future of Health and that's how we find your questions. So we're going to jump right in. We've got a question from Noreen that says, how common is it for breast cancer diagnosis to bankrupt a family or cause severe financial hardship? There was a study in 2012 by Livestrong that said 63.8% of participants who who responded to the survey were worried about paying large bills related to cancer. And the survey also reported that 33.6% of responders had to borrow money or go into debt, Mm. while almost 40% had to make other kinds of financial sacrifices. And I think when we're thinking about short-term financial assistance, our goal is really to help families to avoid foregoing or delaying medical treatment um, as a way to stay on top of their medical care. Wow, so it's pretty common. It's very common, okay. We have another question from Kelsey via Facebook, and it says, does your foundation cover non-medical expenses like childcare or transportation? Yeah, we definitely help with gas and, and groceries. Um, so, so some other ways that we're helping families beyond rent and utilities. Uh, we stay out of childcare. Our goal is set to try and free up some money in some other ways so that families can pay for daycare or a babysitter when they need to get to treatment. Um, we've also paid a number of mechanic bills so that a family has a safe and reliable way of getting to their appointments. Oh, that's interesting. Okay. And you did touch on this earlier, but you actually don't do medical bills. You just Correct. do the periphery. Correct. Okay. Well, we have a question from Amani. I hope I'm saying that name right. Um, is it common for one or both adults to have to leave their job when dealing with cancer? In 2009, the Journal of the American Medical Association published a survey that said anywhere from 40 to up to 85% 
of cancer patients stop working during their treatment. And the average absence being out of work is anywhere from 45 days to six months. Wow. So it can be a substantial length of time that a family is coping with a loss of income. So you can imagine the burden must be terrifying. Correct, yeah. correct. And as Americans, we aren't so great at saving and having a rainy day fund, so that can quickly be diminished. Oh, so fast. I mean, next thing you know, the roof has a leak in it, exactly. the car's not working, absolutely. Exactly. Um, we'll take another question. Carmen from Twitter says, does the assistance only cover the patient? My husband has to take off work a lot to care for our kids and take me to my appointments. Would we qualify if I was never employed to start with and I'm just a stay-at-home mom? First of all, you're not just a stay-at-home mom. That's a full-time job, but it's a great question. Absolutely. We would definitely help Carmen's family and other families like her. In fact, we've helped a, a family, um, a married couple with one boy who um, required the dad to bring the mom to a number of breast cancer appointments and he couldn't work during those appointments. So yes, we have experience doing that and would love to help families like Carmen as well. Let's take one more question. Comes from Tyler via Twitter and it says, do I have to be a Providence patient to get help from the Mayday Foundation? No, that is not a requirement at all. I would say the majority of our patients are do come to us from Providence, but that's mostly because the social workers are affiliated with Providence. But we are welcoming any family who lives or receives treatment in Thurston, Grace Harbor, Lewis County um, to to reach out to us and uh, ask for help. That's great. Kobe, you specialize in the, the behavioral health, the clinical behavioral piece of it. How much better our patients off when they have this kind of an opportunity. I mean, you see them and then you refer them here. Is it is a big relief for them? Does it help their health prognosis in general? I think it's a huge relief. You you noted that just because you're diagnosed with cancer, as, as I mentioned earlier, it doesn't mean all your other emotional or familial issues go away. Well, just because you're diagnosed with cancer doesn't mean your car is going to feel compassion for you and not break down that day. So. <laughs> It's a huge stress, the financial strain on families in terms of those medical bills, but then all the other ancillary costs, especially if one of the, the people is unable to, to be employed during that time. So Amy's foundation could not be better named the Mayday Foundation. It truly has brought great relief to so many families now in our community. It's amazing, I have to give Amy some kudos here, that she was barely done with treatment herself when she was so ready to give back and create this extraordinary resource for folks in our community. It's a great stop gap to help them through that critical time so that they're able to get back on their feet. How much has your organization grown since you started it with just you? Yeah, um, I'm a serial entrepreneur, so I'm used to starting things from scratch. So when we started in January of 2017, we had no money, no social media <laughs> followers, no families even that needed help. Um, and today, just 18 months later, uh, we've helped over 20 families stay out of bankruptcy. Um, and uh, have raised a considerable amount of money to make sure that we're able to, to for a long time, pay, pay rent, pay utilities, get 
gas and grocery cards. We've also added a scholarship um, that delivered um, thousands of dollars to eight local students to get them kick-started with their college education this year. And we're just continuing to add more services. We launched a celebration box that brings all the party supplies a family would need to to their home so that they can celebrate a kid or a parent's birthday without having to think about getting the cake mix or, or the frosting that's amazing yeah and we've what helped with school supplies thing. and yeah um holiday gifts and just kind of trying to fill that gap in any way that a family needs that support and there's a beautiful fundraiser on may day where flowers are delivered to folks um from the may day foundation with a donation and that's been a very heartening and successful fundraiser where do you get most of your funding? Is it donors? Yeah, so the majority of our funding comes from just people in the community that care about um, taking care of other vulnerable families that are their neighbors. And um, we also have support from family foundations, corporate gifts, as well as some grants that um, we've been successfully approved for. So a wide variety of, of sources, but um, I think it's most, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? The, most endearing to me when other members of the community choose to give in this way. Do you find that people who were recipients of your foundation come back and donate when they are able to? Yes, and um, sometimes it's not necessarily donation of money, but donation of time. Time. Mm -hmm. And they're also extremely willing to help with quotes for grants or be able to tell their story about how they were impacted so that we're able to raise more money. And, And that's a gift in and of itself. So people are able to maybe volunteer with you as well then? Correct. Kobe mentioned the May Day Foundation fundraiser that we do on May Day, and that requires a lot of help with making bouquets and delivering bouquets and smiling at people who aren't expecting a bouquet on their doorstep. Um, So that's a great opportunity to donate. We also have partnered with Providence and the Capital Bicycling Club to do a a bike ride at the end of June each year. And that's another wonderful way for people to get involved. Well, can you, in, in the 18 months that you guys have been up and running, is there any one family or patient or person that you've helped that really resonated with you or just really made you feel like this was the right decision? Yeah, we, I, I mean, they all stick out to me. I, I feel like every single check that went to um, a third party was impactful and meaningful and every grocery, grocery card that goes out in the mail. Um, I think the one that maybe sticks with me as a single mom who was self-employed raising her daughter and um, could not work at all and didn't have as strong of a support network um, in terms of you know another income in the household and so to be able to um, keep her family afloat uh, really really felt good and I'm, I'm glad that she's kind of able to start going back to work now a little bit and that she and her daughter have um, a safe place to live beautiful work and it's amazing that this beautiful foundation came from a diagnosis that you received and just a moment where you said I'm grateful I'm blessed there's people who might need something from me so beautiful work that you do last thing I'm going to ask you is where do people find out more information about the foundation yeah we'd love for people to visit our website www.maydayfoundation.org you can also find us on twitter instagram and facebook and would love to love to have you connect with us and, and share your story and and how we might be able to help. Wonderful. Well, thank you for the beautiful work that you do. We are going to take one more break and then we will be back to finish our episode. We look forward to connecting. 
talk I like the things you wear I want your number tattooed on my arm in ink I swear Cause when the morning comes I know you won't be there Every time I turn around you disappear Somewhere warm, you know, j'adore la mer Cause when the morning comes I know you won't be there Every time I turn around You disappear Tattooed on my arm in ink, I swear Cause when the morning comes I know you won't be there But every time I turn around you disappear So much great information. It really brings to question, though, Kobe, um, talk a little bit about survivorship. That term is so loaded, much as Ryan alluded to palliative care and how people have misconceptions about that. Really, all the word survivor means for cancer is you were ever diagnosed with cancer. It doesn't mean you're free of the disease. It doesn't mean some five-year mark has passed. It just means you were diagnosed with cancer at some point in your life. You are considered a cancer survivor. Now, some people really embrace that term and others dislike it. They prefer other terms. One of my patients said, I like cancer experienced person. Our <laughs> prostate guys like warriors. Others prefer thrivers. So there are a number of different labels and it's a huge umbrella because under that umbrella are people who are treated and the disease never comes back, people who are treated and it's more like a chronic disease, people who are diagnosed and they go on soon after to hospice. So it's a really broad range under that, that term survivor. And what I tell all of our patients is, no matter your personal feelings about the term, don't let it prevent you from taking advantage all, of all the services we offer that may have that survivor or survivorship label as part of the title. 
I'm really glad you said that because I think I told you at the beginning, being a breast cancer survivor, I don't like to use the word because I always look at it and say, well, I just had lumpectomies. I didn't have to have radiation. I didn't have to have chemotherapy. So I don't feel like I experienced it or as much as someone else. And so I never want to use the terminology. And that's exactly what my doctor said. You survived it. It may come back. It may not come back. But you do need to use that word because it's something you do have to embrace to move on. So you may be living with it still. And you are still a cancer survivor. Yes. Yeah. Talk a little bit about the challenges people face that are unique to breast cancer. I think that unlike other cancers where perhaps the evidence of the treatment is not so clear and where your, for many women, just their femininity, relationships, how they feel about themselves, how others look at them, the challenges of finding clothes that fit correctly, a bathing suit. It goes from the, the daily just how do I look today to what does this mean about who I am? How can this part of me that you know served many different functions depending on who you are, now it is a source of perhaps fear and disease and I, I can't look at myself in the same way again. And it can really affect not only our own self-esteem, but relationships, our sexuality. The treatment for breast cancer may fling us prematurely into menopause, which brings its, its own whole host of side effects. And so I think that there are, there are many issues unique to breast cancer, and the breast cancer community is so strong in this country in terms of research and supportive services. Sometimes my patients with other diagnoses are somewhat envious of how much is going on for breast cancer. So while there are unique aspects to it, I think there are more common denominators in terms of the same treatments are used for most cancers, the same fears of recurrence, living with the after effects of treatment, living with well-meaning but naive others mm -hmm. who say the wrong things that make us feel worse. So I think more of the commonalities while recognizing that there are unique aspects to breast cancer that we need to pay attention to and we do pay attention to with our comprehensive care team. So Ryan, Kobe, do you guys have services for the family members of those patients? When you talk about like the naivety of things that you say or trying to make somebody feel better, what kind of resources do you have for the family members or loved ones? Well, one of the things that we offer is a, a support group, uh, not just for patients, but for patients and their caregivers. Actually right here at St. Peter Hospital uh, two times a month. It's a walk-in support group. Um, it's free to patients, uh, anybody that has uh, been dealing with a, a cancer diagnosis in their families, welcome to join us. It's facilitated um, by either our social worker or one of our counselors, and, and sometimes even Kobe graces us with her presence. Right, and we actually have two other support groups. We have a breast cancer only support group for women with breast cancer, which is led by a breast cancer survivor. And then we have another group for people who are further down the road from initial diagnosis and just dealing with that Damocles sword over their heads that I alluded to earlier in terms of fear of recurrence or all the challenges of living with cancer as a chronic disease. 
We also have free counseling for our patients and their loved ones. So the family members can come in on their own for that counseling. And we have so many different educational events. We're excited, we're about to start a CLIMB program for children of families where there is a, someone diagnosed with cancer. And we have trained facilitators for that. So really, we have educational events, individual counseling, support groups, not only for the person diagnosed with the cancer, but their loved ones also. Would you have any tips or recommendations for maintaining maybe a good mental health during this time? That is a challenge because we know that unfortunately all the other problems in your life don't take a holiday once the cancer <laughs> diagnosis hits. So if you're having financial issues or there's alcoholism in the family or you're already depressed or anxious or you have, you're living with teenagers who are challenging, all those things don't go away. So one of the things we really emphasize is not isolating yourself, is taking advantage of these comprehensive, supportive services we have. And it's, it's, I think people get tired of hearing it, but communication with your loved one, with your partner, is really critical. Sometimes couples do what, even beyond couples, family members do what we call protective buffering. And basically that's where I'm feeling fear, anxiety, upset, worry, but I don't want to share it with you because I don't want to burden you. And in turn, your loved one may have their own fears and concerns and anxiety, and they don't share it with you because they don't want to add to the burden of being diagnosed with and treated for cancer. So then essentially we're living together but separately with our own fears and anxiety. And you can see where that can get really complicated in terms of sexuality in a relationship, which can be challenging after the, the treatments we give you. So there's a lot going on there as a culture. We don't do such a good job of dealing with illness and side effects from treatment. And so let us help you take advantage of our services. Let us help you communicate with each other and do the best you can for yourself. Just acknowledging this is hard. I'm gonna take it one step at a time. I'm gonna get help. I'm gonna take advantage of everything I can. And I'm just gonna be as gentle and tender with myself as I can as I move forward. It's great advice. It's great. I, I feel like everybody should be able to have an hour long session with you. That would be phenomenal. <laughs> I agree. Well, we've covered a lot today in the segment, and I want to make sure that there's nothing that I missed that you think is really important. I think the only thing that I really wanted to touch on was that the Providence Regional Cancer System has five different locations, is that right, within the area? We, we have three primary locations um, in Lacey, in Centralia, and in Aberdeen, where we offer um, medical oncology and radiation oncology in those uh, three primary areas. Uh, we have two outreach clinics um, where we offer consultative services one day a week. Uh, that would be in Yelm and also in Shelton. Wonderful. Is there anything that you guys wanted to touch on today that we haven't gotten through? I would just add that I'm 60 years old now, so when I was a little girl, I remember when my parents and their relatives would say the word cancer, they wouldn't even say it out loud, they would whisper mm -hmm. it. And so we've come a very long way, not only in terms of accepting that this is a common disease, but that 
we need to provide services that go beyond treatment for our patients and their loved ones. And just in the course of my career, I am so impressed. I know we have a long way to go, but in terms of the available treatments, the number of people surviving the disease, and the comprehensive services we offer to everyone in the family, I feel good about how far we've come. It's very true, and I love the fact that you're in the clinical psychology space because we talk a lot on the mental health side about people aren't afraid to say they have cancer, but they're afraid to say they have a mental health condition, and what you're saying is 20, 30 years ago, we were afraid to say we have cancer, which gives us hope that eventually we will be able to talk about mental health just like it's diabetes, right? Absolutely. Absolutely. Thank you, Ryan, Kobe, and Amy for joining us today, and to everyone for listening and sending in your questions. We look forward to a future topic with more experts from Providence St. Joseph Health. Make sure to follow us on social media at PSJH on Twitter and on Instagram and under Providence St. Joseph Health on Facebook. To learn more about our mission and the vital healthcare programs and social services we provide, go to future.psjhealth.org.